following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, but then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have the commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. So these are descendants from, also descendants from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descendant from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, does anybody understand anything about what this is talking about? (laughs) Clearly not one of the most uh, simple passages of scripture, Uh, but but actually it's... it's, uh, It's not maybe as difficult as it looks when we can explain it. Um, I'm getting some really terrible ringing feedback up here. Hello, one, two, three. Is that better? Check. Is that good? Okay, it's still kind of ringing some, but... Um, Yeah, that's going to drive me crazy. I'm going to switch to this mic because this is hurting, hurting my ears too much. Uh, and and what is this whole thing about a priest? Why 
Why is it important that Jesus is our high priest? And what exactly is meant by all that? Um, well, to help us maybe identify a little bit with what this is about, um, we, we don't have people that we call priests per se, but uh, all of us at one time or another, um, and, and maybe lots of times, need, need somebody to talk to, right? Uh, when, when your life is just not working, or when you have like big questions that Siri or Google can't answer, uh, is there such a thing, right? Is there such a thing, a question so big that Siri can't answer? Um, you know, who do you go to? Where, where do you turn? And the reality is that maybe, maybe more than ever, we need like real people to talk to uh, when, when, when we find ourselves struggling with things in life. Life gets hard. Um, you know, there is a role and a place for somebody who can, uh, we can share our burden with. Now, some of us may be so stubbornly independent that we would never talk to anybody. Uh, and oftentimes these people uh, turn inward into a spiral of uh, negative introspection that leads to depression and other bad things. Uh, God designed us to be creatures of community. And he designed us to not do life alone. Uh, and he, um, he knows that we need, we need people to share with. But one of the reasons that we do oftentimes turn towards introspection and not other people is that sometimes other people are not always all that helpful, right? Um, maybe, we can, maybe we turn to our friends, uh, but sometimes that's very complicated and sometimes just not really helpful. And our friends mean well and um, they try, but oftentimes they don't really understand what we're going through. Oftentimes our friends are terrible listeners, just like we're probably terrible listeners, and oftentimes what we do when we share our struggles with our friends is they want to fix our problems for us by giving us all kinds of cheap and worthless advice, right? Don't be that friend, okay? Just saying, don't be that person who gives cheap and worthless advice. Uh, they mean well, but I just love it when people have all kinds of advice for me and it's like, yeah, okay, you don't get it. Um, so really what we're looking for is we're looking for a kind of person who will be uh, caring and sensitive, a person who will listen, who will really understand, who will really work at understanding what we're feeling and what we're experiencing and what we're going through. Uh, a person who really has compassion for us in the midst of our difficulty and who cares about us. But also somebody who, who has enough wisdom to, to give us help, not in the form of cheap advice, uh, but to give godly counsel. And maybe that's not so much giving pat answers or telling us what to do, as, it, as much as it is someone who can ask the right questions and can challenge us gently uh, to point us in the right direction where we can find our own answers and come up with our own solutions. Uh, we all need that. Right, we we do need that. We need there's a place in life for these kind of people. Um, uh, now, before the modern age, when the world was so highly specialized, this was often the role of a local pastor. Oftentimes, a pastor in a little village was one of the more educated, if not the most educated person in a village, and uh, they they were a good person to connect with. And hopefully, if the if the pastor had a true shepherding heart. They were sensitive, and they would listen, and they would have compassion and understanding. And so for a long time, up until kind of really more modern times, that was one of the significant roles of a pastor. Uh, they could be sometimes a terrible preacher or teacher, but if they were good counselors, good shepherds, uh, they could lead their, their, their flocks well. But we live in a different world now uh, where people are much more educated and where everything is specialized. Right? Most of us can't get a job doing a lot of little things mediocre, right? We live in a world where, where the expectation and the requirement is that we do one thing really, really well, right? And so, so some of us, that's a struggle because some of us don't do anything really well, right? So we have to, we have to pray. But um, it's kind of the world we live in. You need to specialize. And so churches really kind of function more and more this way. The Christian organizations and ministries um, we have preachers who, who, who specialize in preaching. And there's a lot, of, a lot of expectations that preachers are good communicators and you know, they don't want mediocre sermons. We want 
good sermons, right? And so that, that takes time and attention and focus. So preachers specialize in that. And we have other people who specialize in counseling and in member care and in being that person who uh, can listen and understand and give, give advice. Um, maybe part of that is because maybe pastors weren't always good counselors. I don't know. Um, but, but, but that's kind of the world we live in. The point being, though, is that um, there's, a, there's a need for this. And with all of our modern technology, uh, the, the need is not diminishing. In fact, it's probably increasing for this counseling kind of role, this mentoring role, or this coaching role. And we have other names for it now. Um, but if you go even further back in history, back to the Old Testament, this is really the role or function of the priest. And this is where a lot of this comes from. Um, of course, the Catholic Church uh, retained some of that, and maybe some of the reason they retained it is because it was such a dominant role uh, in the Old Testament. This was the person that you would go to for counsel and advice. Uh, and it was not just because they maybe were more educated, but it was really their position as they stood as a mediator between people and God. And the reality is, what in the in the Old Testament you could not just go directly to God to get advice and, and help and counsel. And of course, you could pray to God, and people did pray to God. But really, if you wanted to come to God's presence, you had to do it through the priest. Right? He was the mediator who stood between you and God. And the people, because God, because He's a holy God, because of His character and nature, the way the whole worship, the tabernacle and temple was set up. You didn't just march into God's presence on your own and ask God for advice. You went to the priest and the priest would listen and then he would go in prayer before God and he was a a go-between. And you see Moses actually fulfilling in the book of Exodus and and, uh, uh, up through Deuteronomy, Moses' role is very much filling this kind of role where he is interceding on the behalf of the people. The people could not go directly to God and so Moses did that for them. Uh, but it was uh, to do the job well, he needed to be sensitive and aware of what the people were going through. Right? A priest who was clueless was worthless as a priest. He had to be a person who listened and who understood what the people were struggling with and would be very sensitive and caring. And he would uh, bring those needs before God and then he would listen and get God's wisdom and, and, and turn that back to the people. And so... Um, it was set up this way intentionally by God that the channel of his, of his help would come through the, the priest. And that was the, the way you access God and his help and would pray. Um, so, of course, uh, Reformation, Reformation came along and we decided to ditch the priesthood. I think that was actually a good thing, as we'll see uh, today in Hebrews. Um, uh, there, there's no longer a need for a human priest uh, but uh, why? Why did we ditch the priest, right? It's because we didn't like their clothes, didn't like the whole little collar thing or something, or what? I mean, what was this really about, that we have ditched this part of what was a significant part of the Old Testament? And, um, and, and if that person is gone, who do we need, who do we go to for counsel and help? How is this supposed to work for us, uh, in, in the New Testament? Well, the, the short answer, I'll, I'll jump to the end real quick. Um, the short answer is that the old institution was done away with not because we no longer need a priest, but because we now have the ultimate great high priest in the resurrected and ascended Jesus. Okay, the reason we don't, you don't call me a priest, we don't have priests, is because Jesus is our high priest. And he's our great high priest and there can be no duplicates of him. In this role, he doesn't need assistance. Okay, now he, he does uh, call people to uh, sub-roles and he has his body where we are all gifted, in a sense, as his assistance. But there's no need for a role of a priest because he fulfills it in himself so completely. Um, so let's go back and look through this very confusing passage about Melchizedek and tithes and offerings and blessings and Levi and Aaron and some really weird stuff. And um, see if we can understand how Jesus is our priest. What does that mean? And why is he a priest after the order of Melchizedek? What in the world does that mean? Who is this guy, Melchizedek? Um, Well, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, 
king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now, if you've never read Genesis, you would have no idea what any of this is talking about. Uh, So I'm going to pretend you haven't, even though probably most of you have. But this story goes back to the Old Testament in Genesis. um, When Abraham was living in uh, the land that God had led him to, and uh, at this point, he had not had any children yet, and his only living relative was Lot. And if you remember in Genesis, they both grew to where their herds and their servants got so big that they couldn't live together. So Abraham told Lot, pick, pick your turf. And so uh, Lot liked the area around Sodom. And so he went down into the plains uh, out where Sodom was, and this was, of course, before it was destroyed, and it was a lush green valley, and, and Lot and went and moved there. And Abraham stayed up in the hill country. Um, and one day, uh, the territory of Sodom was invaded by four kings from the north who, in, who raided them, captured all the citizens, took all their sheep and flock and goods and possessions, and marched them off to take them home as prisoners and captives. And uh, Abraham, Abraham gets word of this. And so he's not about to let his, his, his nephew Lot um, be taken prisoner. And he's going to do something about this. So he gathers together his servants and his workers, about 300 people. And he goes off, and I don't know how he does this, but he takes on five kings, or I'm sorry, four kings, and he defeats them. And he rescues Lot and all the citizens of Sodom, along with all their possessions. And he... Uh, returns back to return them to uh, their home. And as he's getting close, the king of Sodom comes and meets him, and along with him is Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now, Melchizedek was not involved in this conflict. Uh, He's from another city, uh, potentially Jerusalem, although there's some debate if Salem was actually Jerusalem. It doesn't really matter. Uh, He's a king of a different town. And... um, Abraham, uh, the, the king of Sodom tells Abraham, you know, I don't want anything. Just let me have my citizens back, my people back. But because you rescued them all, you deserve the, the, the plunder. You deserve all the goods, right? It's rightfully yours and we'll give it to you. And Abraham says, no, I'm not, I'm not keeping all your stuff. This is your stuff. But he said, I am going to honor God by giving a tithe out of all of it to God. And so, in the story here, it's, it identifies that Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God. Also raises a ton of questions we don't have any answers to. How was he a priest of the Most High God when he was not, not, a, child, not a descendant of Abraham, not a child of the promise? We don't know. Right? But it says he's a priest of the Most High God. And so he qualifies in Abraham's mind. It's like, I'll give, I'll give my tithe to this guy. And so that's what he does. He gives a tenth out of all these stuff that he's... He's captured to Melchizedek. Um, and so it says, it says in verse 2 that, it, he, that this Melchizedek is, by, first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And so the first thing that the writer of Hebrews tells us about this guy is that he is a king-priest, which was unique. In Israel, that was an absolute no-no. In fact, Saul got Saul basically lost his his right to rule as king over Israel because he tried to function as both a king and a priest, and that was the last straw. And God said, "After that, I'm, I'm ripping the kingdom out of your hands." Uh, but but that was not true for for Melchizedek, who served as a king and a priest, and his kingdom was one it says of righteousness and peace. That was the meanings of his name. And in the place where he ruled, king of peace, king of righteousness. Um, so what the, what the author of Hebrews is, is, is preparing to do is to show us how Melchizedek is a picture or a figure of Jesus. And that's really what this is all about. It's really not about Melchizedek or Abraham. It's about Jesus, who is going to be our great high priest, but in a different order or in a different manner than um, than Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. And so the first connection we see is that Jesus is a priest king. Uh, we see that uh, prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9. 
For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. Right, so even back in Isaiah, he was, Isaiah was predicting a messianic figure who would sit on David's throne, who would have a kingdom of peace and righteousness. Uh, another significant point that the author of Hebrew makes about um, Melchizedek is that he is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, this one really uh, flips people out, and there's all kinds of crazy theories about who, who was this Melchizedek. Uh, and some have speculated he was an angel because he doesn't have a mom or a dad. He's without genealogy, right? Uh, and later he's going to talk about him being having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So, so maybe he's an angel. Uh, maybe he is uh, a pre-incarnate Jesus, which means, you know, Jesus, before he came to earth, came. It was actually Jesus uh, being uh, standing in as Melchizedek. Um, there's lots of other theories, but, but Scripture nowhere indicates that Melchizedek is anything other than a real king, a real person, a real guy. Um, and what the author of Hebrews is doing is he is um, letting the silence of Scripture speak. And he's not saying that Melchizedek was never born, that he was an alien from outer space who just plopped onto planet Earth. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying that in the biblical record, there's no genealogy. right? So if we want to look up his parents, we can't. He is in the record. He's as if a person without family. All we know about him is he just appears on the scene and we don't know anything of his history or his family or what comes before or after and so um, we'll see. We'll see later on why this is significant. Uh, what and, and what what he's trying to tell us here is he's he's not a priest based on his lineage, right? In Israel, if you wanted to be a priest, you, you didn't go to preschool and graduate and then get ordained, kind of like we do in, in in our modern world. The only way you could be a priest is if you were born into the right family. You had to be a descendant of Aaron, of the tribe of Levi. Of course, this creates a problem for Jesus. If Jesus is going to be our priest, um, what, what tribe did he come from? We should know this one. Judah. That's right. He's the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. And so he's not qualified to be a priest because he's not of the right lineage, not the right family tree. Uh, but he's saying here that oh, here's a priest who qualified, who, who Abraham could give a tithe to, who had no genealogy, right? He was not a priest because he met the, the, the family requirements. That's his point, right? He's not trying to make him out to be some supernatural being. All right, and it also says he's without beginning or end, neither having beginning of days nor end of life. Again, he's not saying that this guy was never born. He's not saying he's eternal. What he's saying is this, the rest of verse 3 puts it this way, but he's resembling... The Son of God, uh, he continues a priest forever. And the point is that not uh, the point he's making is that this Melchizedek figure looks a lot like Jesus, right? When we see how he's portrayed in the Old Testament, um, so he was a real person, but he's a real person who resembles the life of Jesus because we don't know where he came from, we don't know what happened to him afterwards. He just appears in the story. And so he's kind of a mystical figure. Um, and, and so the main point of all this that he's making here is that the priesthood of Melchizedek is an eternal priesthood. Right? We'll see that later on as this un unfolds. What he's talking about is a priesthood that is eternal. It's never ending. It's ongoing. Uh, and that was never true of the, the priesthood of Aaron. Aaron died. Uh, his sons died. And each generation had to raise up and appoint a new uh, priest because each generation died. Uh, but what, he, what the author of Hebrews likes is he likes this picture of Melchizedek who apparently didn't die. Of course, he did die. But 
What, what's representative of his priesthood is it's eternal. It's ongoing forever. Um, and what he's, what he's making is this comparison that he is a picture or a type of Jesus, who's the eternal Son of God, who is without beginning or end of days. And that Melchizedek points to that. Uh, Jesus is a priest after this order. It's different than the Levitical priesthood. He's a priest not by genealogy. He's a priest who's also a king. He did not receive his priesthood because he was born into a particular family. And the character of his priesthood is one that's eternal in nature, not temporary. That's the point he's making in all this kind of cryptic language. Um, And he's solving for us a problem. And throughout the Old Testament, places like Isaiah 9 that I just read, we see this picture of of a Messiah who had some attributes as the king, but some attributes as a priest. And this was a problem for, for people, for Jews and people holding to a strict view of the Old Testament. Uh, and they didn't know how to solve this. How could he be both a priest and king? And so much so that uh, some early scribes and, and, and Old Testament um, Jews felt that there were going to be two messiahs. One who would fulfill the role of king and one who would fulfill the role of priest. But what he's showing us here is that that. The, the Bible itself, the Old Testament, pointed to a Messiah who was both priest and king. But he would do that not because he was a descendant of Levi, but because he was a priest of a different kind, right, of a different order, uh, coming from the, the type or the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. Um, this is really a, a, a great example of the brilliance of Scripture, uh, that the Bible was written over the period of thousands of years by many different authors, and yet it weaves together and paints this amazing picture where everything points to Jesus. Uh, and this is one of the most uh, kind of bizarre and extreme examples of that. The whole account of Melchizedek takes three verses in Genesis, and it is at best an obscure story. And he's not even the main character. It's really about Abraham, right? A thousand years later, the only other Old Testament mention of Melchizedek happens a thousand years later when uh, David, writing in the Psalms, in Psalms 110, says, uh, in, in Psalms 110, verse 1, which, by the way, is the main text that this preacher of Hebrews is preaching from. Right? You, should, you should know that. Right? That's what he's, he's, he's expositing Psalms 110. And he's talked a lot about verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And another confusing verse, but he's talking there about uh, the, the ultimate Messiah would not be less than David, but he would be greater than David. David himself calls him Lord, even though he's a descendant. And it's pointing to Jesus who came incarnate as the Son of God, who is greater than David, even though he was coming... Um, as a successor to David's throne. Uh, and then in verse 4 he says this, about the same guy, about this Lord who's going to be making all the enemies at his footstool. He said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now where in the world does that come from? Right? Out of the blue. Random. This is, this is like random. Okay, anybody here like random? It doesn't get any more random than this. So we have these two mentions of Melchizedek in all of the Old Testament. But they're connected and related. Um, They came a thousand years apart. But clearly, God and his plan said, this is a picture of Jesus. And Jesus uh, is going to be uh, a messianic king. And also a messianic priest. And, and the way he's going to do this is after the, the pattern or, or order of Melchizedek. Um, and uh, it's interesting that of all the New Testament authors, the writer of Hebrews is the only one who makes this connection. And he's really the only one who uh, explains or highlights Jesus in the role of a high priest. Um, so a couple more things we need to know before we can kind of put all the pieces together. Um, not only is he going to be a priest but, but uh, after the order of Melchizedek, but this Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. 
This is a lot to say to people who are all the descendants of Abraham, right? In, in, in Judaism, kind of the beginning of the whole thing is Abraham. And to claim something greater than Abraham is making a pretty significant claim. So how could Melchizedek be greater than Abraham? Well, two, there's two reasons. Um, verse 4, he says, See how this man to whom Abraham the patriarch gave uh, a tenth of the spoils. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. First thing that makes him greater is that uh, it was right for Abraham to pay his tithe to Melchizedek. Um, the, the, the logic here being that you don't pay this tithes to somebody less than you, maybe to somebody equal to you, but never to someone less. Right? It needs to be somebody representing God, and so it needs to be somebody big, somebody up there. Right? Um, and he goes on and he explains it this way. He says, uh, those descendants of Levi, that is the priests, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from people. Um, in church, we, we kind of avoid using that language, although we do say we're going to take the offering now. I guess we do use that, right? We're going to take the offering, which means we're going to come take it from you. Wow. I think we need to emphasize that a little stronger. Um, that's what he says. He's going to take the offering. And this was commanded by God in the law. They were to pay their tithes to the priest who would receive it. Um, but he says that is from their brothers. Right? In what way were the Levites, were the Levites superior to the rest of the Israelites? Well, not really. He says, look, you are all descendants of Abraham. That is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendant from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. In other words, in the Old Testament you paid tithes and the priests took them, <laughs> received them. But they weren't really better than the rest of Israel. They were simply their brothers. They both were descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek wasn't like that. He wasn't related to Abraham. He, they weren't brothers. He was, uh, in the logic of the writer of Hebrews, he was better. He was above. He was greater. Um, and it was right for him to give those tithes to Melchizedek as a priest of God. Um, in verse 8, In the one case tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case by one of whom it is testified that he lives. Okay, Again, he's, he's referring to uh, the contrast with uh, Melchizedek, who in a sense was eternal. He was living on in the story, um, unlike Aaron, who we know died. Um, so, so he's greater for that, that reason. And in fact, not only was he greater than uh, Abraham, but he goes on in verse 9 and says, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Right, so a lot of a lot of science there. I'm not going to go into in biology right there, um, but but somehow uh, Levi was was there in, in the in the DNA of Abraham, and so when Abraham paid that tithe, in a sense Levi even the priest was paying a tithe to to Melchizedek. And his point in all this is that even the priests. Are, are less than Melchizedek. So he's building this case for the priesthood of Melchizedek, that it's not less than the Levitical priesthood, it's greater. And why does that matter? Because it's a picture of Jesus. Right? For Jesus to become a priest, it was not fitting for him to be a priest under the order of Levi or Aaron, because that would have made him a priest on equal ground. But Jesus is not a priest on an equal ground. He's a priest who is above and superior uh, to the priesthood of Levi. The other thing that happens that shows his superiority in verse 7, it says, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Uh, not only did Melchizedek receive tithes, but he also blessed Abraham. And he spoke a blessing over him. Um, very Asian thinking here. Like if you're from the West, you would be like, well, why can't lessers bless greaters, right? It's democracy. 
But of course, that's not the way it worked in the Bible. It's not Asian thinking. There's a sense that blessings come from those above us. And it is the role of a parent to bless the child. It is the role of a king to bless their subjects. And so, likewise, it is, it is Melchizedek who's superior because he blesses Abraham. And of course, these are pictures of Jesus and our relationship with him as priest. Um, as our great high priest, he is worthy of all that we have. Right? It is right and fitting us to pay our tithe to Jesus. And we as a church, we may take your tithe, but ultimately we should be giving it to Jesus. And why did we do that? Why did Abraham give this tithe? Well, it's because he knew that none of this belonged to him. Right? He gained this victory by God's help and God's hand. And the tithe was a sign of gratitude and thanksgiving that God had taken care of him. And that should always be the heart of our tithing, our giving back to God. Uh, it should never be something we do because we feel like we have to, because it's the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do, but the reason it's the right thing is because we've experienced God's blessing in our life. Um, giving the tithe and giving of the blessings go together. Uh, God had blessed Abraham, and he knew it. And in gratitude, he gives a tithe back, knowing that really all of it is God's. But the tithe is a symbol of his thankfulness and his acknowledging where it all came from. Right, that should be the heart of us giving our tithes. And we give it to the one who blesses us. When you think about Jesus and his role in your life, do you think of him as the one who lives to bless you? And is that what you think of Jesus? Honestly, that's not my first thought of Jesus or God. Uh, I think of God as something that demands stuff from me. And it may have to do with my wrong thinking, right? But, but ultimately, he is the one who lives to bless us. And he longs to bless us. All right, so he's greater than Abraham. But also, this priesthood is one that is greater than Aaron. And not only because Aaron offered, offered uh, ties to him through Abraham. Um, but in the last few verses uh, that we'll look at today, uh, the author really answers two important questions that we looked at at the beginning. First question, why do we need a different kind of priest? Uh, why, why, why couldn't things just continue on with the Levitical priesthood? Why, couldn't, why was it not appropriate for Jesus to serve as a priest of Aaron? Uh, why do we need a different kind of priest? Well, he answers that uh, in verse 11, and this is, is clear. There's nothing confusing about this. He says simply, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Uh, the reason there was a need for a different kind of priest and a different kind of priesthood is that the old system could not perfect you. Right? It was not adequate or sufficient to make anybody perfect, not even the priests who were in the middle of it. Um, now, does that mean that the, that the law, that the Old Testament was somehow flawed or that it failed? Uh, if that's true, then it means that God messed up. He made a mistake. He had a plan A, and plan A didn't work, so then he had to go to plan B, which was Jesus. But that's, that's, that cannot be true of God. Okay, God, God's only plan was always Jesus from the beginning. So, so how did the Old Testament fail? Why was it incapable of making people perfect? Uh, well, the reason is that it was ne that was never its intention. God never gave the Old Testament priesthood and all the tabernacle and temple and all of its sacrifices. God never intended that it would be adequate to save people, to perfect them, to make them worthy to stand before God and in his presence. So why did he give it then? What was the point of all that? Well, the point is simply this. The old system was simply a picture to make clear all that was required for our salvation. 
Right? It was a picture, it was an illustration, it was an example, so that when Jesus came, we would know exactly what it was that he accomplished on the cross. Um, probably most of us, because we live here as foreigners, fly a lot, right? How many of you like flying? Anybody like flying? Some of you, how many of you hate flying? Okay, some of you, right? But if you live here and live overseas, it's part of our lot in life, right? And uh, I like flying, all except for one small detail, and that is that I'm six foot two. And, uh, and especially on the domestic flights, you know, like the Thai Lion and some of those, I mean, I have to get a, sh- a shoehorn to wedge myself into the seat, you know, grease up the back of the seat and kind of squeeze myself in. And I, I don't like that, right? So my dream of a good flight, my hope every time is that I can get an exit row. Because then I can stretch out. There's more space. Right? But there's a, there's a responsibility that comes with uh, sitting in the exit row. And they always come and they give you the little spiel. If we crash, our life is in your hands. Right? Can you open the door? It's like, uh, yeah, sure. As long as I can sit here, I'll open anything. Right? Just let me sit here, I'll open the door. No problem. Right? And they always tell you, they always go with a little spiel about, you know, and then they say in the, in the, in the uh, pocket in the seat back in front of you, there's, a, uh, there's a instructions, right? So read those. There'll be a quiz, right? And so you take the pictures out. There's a lot of little cartoony pictures that explain how to open the door. Um, so, so the instructions are a picture of what needs to happen. They're not the actual thing. And if the plane crashed, you can't just wave the picture around, right? You actually have to do what the picture illustrates. Well, that's exactly what the Old Testament was. That's exactly what all the rituals around the the temple were about. They were just the picture card showing what needed to take place when the time came. right? And they would practice, they would live out these pictures, they would illustrate these pictures, but they were never meant to be atoning. But it showed them what was required for atonement. Number one, that they could not enter the Holy of Holies. That it was off limits, that the presence of God and the holiness of God was off limits to them because of sin. And that what was required was the shedding of blood. That something had to die and their throat had to be slit and the blood had to be collected. And and you would actually put your hand on the head of the, the lamb. This poor cute little lamb, you know, those big brown eyes looking up at you, and you've got to put your hand on it while they slit its throat. Okay, it's kind of unnerving a bit, knowing that it's dying because you sinned, because you messed up, because you are not worthy to be in God's presence, and that poor animal is pouring out its life in your place. And then the blood was collected, and it was sprinkled in various places, and it was brought ultimately on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies, and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat before Holy God. And it was all a picture to say that we cannot come into God's presence, into the presence of a holy God, without the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. But not a sheep, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He came and Jesus came and He fulfilled all that those pictures pointed to. So the old system did its job. It helped us understand fully in all of its details uh, all that Jesus' death on the cross represented and all that it accomplished for us in bringing us salvation in dealing with our sin and making atonement for us. Um, so if that's all true... Um, what qualifies Jesus uh, to be our high priest, right? Is it because he died? Well, no. In verse 12, he says this, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Uh, there needed to be a new law, a new way to qualify this new priest. For the one whom these things are spoken of, that is Jesus, belonged to the wrong tribe from which no one has ever served as as a priest at the altar. For it is evident, in other words, we all know this, that our Lord Jesus was descended from Judah, and, and in connection with that tribe, Moses never said anything about being a priest. Right. So what qualifies Jesus then to be our priest? 
If he was from the tribe of Judah, he's disqualified as a priest. So how can he serve in that role, uh, not only as the lamb, but as the one who takes the blood into the temple and sprinkles it before God? Well, verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Jesus came in the order or likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. A lot of words to say Jesus did not qualify based on his heritage as a descendant of Aaron. Instead, he's qualified by the power of an indestructible life. What qualifies Jesus to make our high priest is what qualified Melchizedek. He was an eternal priesthood. Jesus is qualified by his by the resurrection. That's what qualifies him to be our priest. And his priesthood is an eternal priesthood. (coughs) What does it mean that it's eternal? Well, we think of eternal as being something that never ends, and that's true. Um, But but that's really not the fullest definition of something that is eternal. Eternal is something that is unchanged by the past and and will will not change into into the future. Uh, we will receive eternal life, and, and as such, we will become immortal. Right? We will never end. But there's a sense in which we do not possess eternal lives. And the, and the reason is that we change. Right? Uh, my first day is marked. And for my first day, fast forward 56 plus years to this day, there's been a lot of changes in my life. And I am not today what I was 20 years ago. That's sad in some ways because 20 years I was 20 years ago I was much faster and much skinnier, <laughs> right? And I I'm sad about those things, but it's also true that I'm not I, what I was 20 years ago because hopefully I'm a little smarter, right? Although I don't remember things as well at all. I'm changing, and the future also is 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 a future of change. I will get slower. I might even get fatter. I'm hoping that's not the case. Uh, I hope I get smarter, but I may not. I know I'll forget more. We are creatures of change. What it means for Jesus to be eternal is that he is always the same. All of his past, present, and future is always fully available in the now, present with us. He is everything he's ever been and everything he ever will be, all in the present moment now. And so what it means that his priesthood is eternal means that everything he is and has and and does for us is constantly and fully available for us here and now in the present. Second big question. We'll close with this. Verse 17. uh, It is witness of him, you, Jesus, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why do we need a priest at all? If Jesus paid for the penalty of sin, if he was the lamb, if his sacrifice was, was good once and for all, and by the way, it was. His sacrifice was once and for all. Uh, that means that there's nothing more to pay for our sin. So when you mess up, Jesus paid for it all. And it's actually a sin for us to try to add to what he paid. Right? Jesus doesn't need to die again for your sin. Right? His sacrifice was enough. And you don't need to die for it either. Right? You don't need to pay for your sin by being guilty. If you're being guilty and not receiving his forgiveness, it's a sin. Right? You don't need to beat yourself up or punish yourself because you messed up. Jesus' sacrifice paid for it once and for all. It's done. So if it's done, if it's complete, then uh, an atonement is made then there's no longer a need for him to serve as our priest, right? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, no, no. Uh, Jesus sacrifices once and for all, but his priesthood is eternal. It means it's ever ongoing. Why is that? Well, because we need him as an ever-present help in our life. Right? What Jesus accomplished on the cross is one time finished. But 
applying that to our life, finding its help and resource in our life is an everyday event. We come to Christ and we are saved and, and sin is dealt with. But there's a lot of other stuff that we must deal with. And the truth is we need a priest. We need that counselor, that shepherd who will help us. And that is Jesus. Um, there's a lot more to this that we're going to look next week and, and the next week's coming at what all Jesus promises to do for us as our high priest. For today, let's end with just this thought that he is an eternal, he is our eternal high priest, which means that he is continually always available. Um, we don't need any more to go through a human mediator. We can go directly to God himself and pray and seek his help. Now, does that mean that we don't need human friends and human counselors? Yeah, we do. It's still great to have a real flesh and blood person telling us what an idiot we are. Great value in that. Smacking us upside the head. Uh, no substitute for that. But, 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 but we don't need that person as a mediator, Right? Unlike the Old Testament where they had to go to the priest and, and they, they couldn't go into God's presence, we get to go right straight to the source. To, to the infinite wisdom of the universe, to eternal God, to Jesus, uh, who is our great high priest. And, and the tragic thing is that all too often we settle only for the human counselor. right? And we don't take the effort to go to the the one who is infinitely better than, 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 than the most loving, caring human being you can find. Right? We are limited. The best counselor, the most understanding, the best listener, they can never know what Jesus knows about you. And they can never know the future like Jesus knows is the future. Right? We need a high priest, and Jesus is our great high priest, our ever-present help in our time of trouble. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.